Cemetery 1968. From Academy Award winner Francis Coppola comes a story of men and women, of friendship and trust, of public ceremony and private passion. The story of the other side of war, the war at home, gardens of stone. Our guest today is one of the film's stars, D.B. Sweeney. He played the character of Doug Dorsey, a hockey prodigy that was forced out of the game due to an eye injury, who is then recruited to become part of a, an Olympic figure skating team opposite Moira Kelly. D.B., welcome to the show. Thanks for taking a couple of minutes to talk. How are you doing? Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. I'm flattered that you guys spent so much time with the movie. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for joining us today, D.B., on this uh, just insane endeavor that we're, uh, you know, part of here. But uh, I just want to say I was so nervous uh, uh, about doing this interview that I puked into a hockey helmet right beforehand. <laughs> but uh, it's fine. You know, I should, I should be okay in about 10 minutes. So we all have a backup hockey helmet yep. uh, because of this. <laughs> That's yeah. right. All right. So DB, I'll start sort of broadly here. And then I figured we'd hone in on some specifics um, with filming uh, The Cutting Edge. But let's begin here. So just broad strokes. You've been in like over 100 films, TV shows, your movies have grossed I don't know, like a billion dollars worldwide. You've worked with everyone from Coppola to Joaquin Phoenix, Liam Neeson, Charlie Sheen, Keanu Reeves. Do you feel like the character of Doug Dorsey is still the thing people most recognize you for today? Uh, broadly, yes, with a couple of carve-outs. Uh, I would say um, if I go to a baseball game, yeah. uh, especially in Chicago, Shoeless Joe Jackson doesn't usually pay for beer. Ain't so, Joe. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and in Lons- in Texas, Lonesome Dove is still the the uh, you know Texas sees itself as a more of a country than a state in a great way, and so Lonesome Dove is the national movie of Texas. So uh, you know playing Dish Boggett in that show was uh, it changed my life in Texas. Which so those two things are two of my favorite places to be in the world are baseball parks and Texas. So uh, anywhere else, it's the cutting edge. I'm just remembering, is, is Lonesome Dove also the series that featured uh, a one Brett the Hitman Hart? Two against one. Well, I heard you were in trouble. Who says I'm in trouble? I don't need no help. 
we had Robert Duvall and Tommy Lee Jones and and Bill Houston and Frederick Forrest and and my dearly departed great friend Robert Urich, who was, uh, you know, that was his high water market of his creative life. You know, he was TV star for years, but for him to be in that company was really, he loved it. Thanks for staying up later. Robert Urich is with us tonight. You, of course, know him as Dan Tana in Vegas and in Spencer for Hire and many television specials and miniseries. Let's focus on a couple of those miniseries special things. Is it fair to say that Lonesome Dove stands out as the one thing, if you could pick one bit of your work to show people, would that be it? Uh, well, without a doubt. Um, you know, I grew up in this little tiny town in Ohio playing cowboys and cowboys and Indians and Zorro and, and dressing up in all those kind of cowboy outfits. And, and my, my uncle across the way, my uncle John, uh, used to uh, endearingly referred to me as Hoppy because Hopalong Cassidy yeah. was my favorite cowboy. So to finally, after all those years doing all kinds of parts, mostly cops and uh, and fathers, and uh, I've I've done a lot of different kind of roles. It was the first cowboy I got to play. It was probably one of those things I, you know, when I first started looking at television and movies, that's what I went to see. One of my first jobs I ever had was on his show Spencer for Hire. So he was so good to me as like a guy. You know, it was my first airplane ticket, my first hotel room. You know, I'd done a lot of theater, but here you get to fly from New York to Boston and be in Spencer for hire. And, and he just treated me like a like a peer instead of a peon. And I never forgot it. And then when we did Lonesome Dove together, I had I had become kind of the flavor of the month. And, and you know, he was sort of like glad to be along. So it was just great to, you know, have the friendship evolve. And uh, we lost him way too soon. Yeah, DB, I wanted to ask you, so you mentioned doing theater like, uh, thinking about this time in your life, the the movie came out in 1992. Like, what what was going on in your acting career at that time? I think I, I read that you'd maybe been doing some off-Broadway theater in New York, right? Like, you were working maybe on a Chekhov play when The Cutting Edge was sort of coming about. Like, what sort yeah. of projects were you doing? Was theater, like, your primary focus at that point? Well, I sort of very stubbornly, like, you know, Francis Ford Coppola plucked me out of obscurity. I was doing theater off-off-Broadway and you know, even if there's further than that, off, 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 off Broadway, yep. where, you know, there's <laughs> nine people and, you know, you pay them to watch the play. You know, I, I did everything from that to actual Broadway. I was in the King Mutant Court Martial. And so when I popped in the Gardens of Stone, where all of a sudden I went from, you know, driving a cab to pay my bills and cooking to, uh, you know, being like a movie star, I was sort of like, okay, wait a second. I'm not going to be, I'm going to do this my own way. I'm going to, I don't just want to play the same guy over and over again. So I'm going to, I almost like was trying to force force feed the town like my versatility. So I had gone off. I did Memphis Bell, which was a really great experience, uh, great cast in England. And I thought that was had a chance to be a great movie. And I think it is a very good movie. And then I said, uh, and then I got signed by this agency, CAA, which is like the big agency. And I was like, you know what? You're not going to turn me into a product. So I went off and did uh, a very small movie in New Jersey in Paris with Alexander Rockwell called Sons, which is the only movie I ever did that never came out. I guess he pissed off the Japanese investor. And oh. Samuel Fuller was in that movie, the great film director. And so it was William Forsyth, Robert Miranda, and me playing the three sons of Sam Fuller with different mothers. And Sam Fuller, the director, actually landed at uh, Normandy on D-Day. And the, we filmed the movie at Normandy on D-Day. So it was a big chunk of it. So that was great. And then I did a movie in Chicago, a basketball movie, that was supposed to be me and Michael Jordan, uh, but Michael Jordan got too famous right during the time when we were getting ready to go, and he uh, dropped out. No way. You know, but it was so it was still a good movie. But instead of uh, Michael Jordan, we had Bo Kimball, 
who was sort of like, uh, you know, a big deal because of that year when Hank Gathers yeah. died. He's yeah, like, of course. Between talent and ambition. Where's your Matthew? He'd bury you. I'll break his heart just looking at Between friendship and betrayal. He's supposed to be working for me. I've been working for you this whole time. I'll get you from the pros myself so you can be a star. Lies the dream that brought them together. This game is one in two places. Here and here. And the challenge. You always was a joke. That could tear them apart. Let's play ball, baby. D.B. Sweeney, Michael Warren, Akeem Olajuwon, and introducing Bo Kimball as Matthew. Heaven is a playground. Movie. I played basketball in Chicago all summer, and uh, uh, that was great. And then uh, I did another movie in Denmark about the the rescue of the Danish Jews, um, you know, which was a, a really interesting little Danish movie, Danish director. Um, and then I did one other movie. So it was sort of like I was like saying to this huge agency, it's like, yeah, look at me. I'm a repertory theater actor. Right, right. Screw you, which is really good career management. <laughs> yeah. Wanted to make me really rich and famous. Yeah. And, uh, so, so anyway, so I, I went through that period and then um, they came to me with the cutting edge um, and it was offered to me, which is always awesome when they offer wow. to you. And so I guess they had a, a, they had gone through who is athletic in, uh, you know, they went through a list of Canadian actors that could actually skate and they didn't really want any of those guys, I guess. But then it was like, who do we have of our on our list of young guys who who are athletic? And because I did eight men out and, and I had a reputation as a good athlete. They were like, well, let's let's use him. And, and uh, but I don't think they expected either myself or Moira to skate really proficiently. And I think that's like kind of what uh, we all love about this film is it, it it brings a level of authenticity that you are often seen skating. And what I find very difficult about sports films in general is there's no way to fake it. There just isn't. And like you have to have your actors really on the ice. And I'm just curious from a standpoint of like. Throughout this production, did you just like eat a lot of shit on the ice? Like just landing on ice hurts. Is this something that you had to struggle against while making the film? Yeah, it was. Well, by the time we got to the movie, I was getting pretty proficient, but you still you can eat at any time. But um, what MGM did and what Paul Glazer did and, and the, the producer, Robert Court, who was a great producer, Runaway Bride, uh, Jumanji. I mean, he made so many great movies, Cocktail. And I got to do Cutting Edge and Roommates with him. And he's he's really an old school Hollywood producer. You know, not a, he was a deal maker, but he was sort of like he loved making movies. He was always on the set. So between him and Paul Glazer and MGM, they rented out a rink in New York City where I was living. And Moira Kelly was living on Long Island. And the rink was rented out for our benefit three hours every day for three months in the morning. And so Moira and I, you know, not that we're method actors or whatever, but we kind of both got there and both being kids from Long Island. You know, she reminded me of, like a girl I might have pulled her hair on the bus. <laughs> you know, it was just like we immediately had a chemistry that was, you know, t that was something to build on. And then we had this training for three months where we sort of openly competed to see who was going to get better. And I really concentrated on ice hockey skating and she didn't have to hockey skate except for one scene. And then we had like ballet classes, just like in the movie, like the whole training montage. We sort of lived it. And Moira was so dedicated and we went every day and, and I discovered that in the same rink in the afternoon, a private school, all these little rich kids that were like nine years old, their gym class was hockey. And so I met the guy who was the coach and I said, can I be in the gym class with these kids? Uh, <laughs> and so I actually would skate all the figure skating pros 
And then I go out with the nine-year-olds. And, and because I wanted to understand what it was like to have played when I was a little kid. And what I learned was that it's as much fun to fall down as it is to score a goal. Because when you fall down, you slide. So I just, I just had this, and that whole really resonated for me in that scene. Like, you know, I just love the smell of the ice. And so I really understood, you know, what that perspective was. And Moira got so good at the figure skating side that as we got ready to go to Toronto to film the movie, she was landing single axle jumps. What? Wow. Whoa. Incredible after three months. Like, she's very athletic and she works so hard. Unfortunately, the first or second day of filming in trying to show what she could do, she landed wrong and broke her leg. Mm. She couldn't skate at all in the movie. And, and now they had to use me more. And, and Sharon Cars, who was her skating double, looked very much like Moira. Like if she was spinning in a, in a tight shot, her, you couldn't tell it wasn't Moira. Right. So, so it was me skating with Sharon like a lot of the time. Like my stunt double wasn't really as believable as Sharon was to Moira. So I ended up having to do a great deal more skating than they had planned. I heard that your stunt double actually had to wear like prosthetics on his face to try to match you. Was that strange to walk up to your double and see like this man in prosthetics to try to replicate you? I mean, I'm just. That- it was very strange. And uh, they had my doubles were kind of cursed. It's harder on the guy in pair skating because when, if, she, if you throw the woman in the air, as she lands, if she misses, her skate blade goes into your leg or your hip or your, you know. And so three yeah. stunt doubles, skating doubles for me, were knocked out of the movie with injury. And then the other guy they got, they found, you know, they did the prosthetics like you mentioned. But the other part of it was that I didn't really have a skater's body. Like like when you skate your whole life, you kind of get a big ass and legs. And figure skaters don't really have big upper bodies. So, you know, that's why they wear those puffy shirts to give better lines. <laughs> all the Russian skaters, they tend to have a more traditionally athletic body. But the North American mm-hmm. skaters tend to have – so they couldn't find somebody that looked physically like me. So – that was the other reason I had to do more skating than they had planned. And also, we've heard it here first. If our audience is trying to get a big ass and legs. It's time <laughs> to figure skate. It's yes. time to figure skate. Hockey definitely. players, too. I mean, if you, you know, you, those guys, you know, they, you definitely, you got to step around them when you're in the hallway. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. You mentioned uh, Moira's injury. We, we've read about that, you know, in our, in our research. Um, I didn't realize it was like that early on in the filming. Um, so I read that we that the uh, the infamous bar scene, you know, with the tequila shots, uh, she was doing that. She, all the dancing, she was seated for those shots, right? So you want to do this? Whatever you have. That's the most humiliating day of my career because he was sitting on a camera dolly and the dolly was moving <laughs> around, and she was a better dancer than me sitting than I was. Sitting. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> yeah, but. But you look like a million bucks in that uh, that blazer and tie. Yeah. So you know, <laughs> yeah, uh, William Ivy Long, the great Broadway costume designer, uh, you know, who's one of considered maybe the best of this era on Broadway. I think it's the only movie he ever did. He didn't like he didn't like being micromanaged. He's used to like doing Broadway shows where you know you're the genius, you're the artist, and he right. is, and do what you want. And and the movie process is a lot of levels of approvals that I don't think he really enjoyed. But that's the movie looks so great because of him. Yeah. Did he was he the one that found that uh, that gigantic fur coat that Moira wore in the uh, hotel room? Yeah, and that uh, that's great that you mentioned that because that that fur coat was a diversion, so you don't notice that her foot is in a cast. Oh my god! Wow! Me carrying her piggyback into that room in that scene was never scripted. She's supposed to be staggering in, but I she couldn't walk, so it's like how do we get her in the room? So we're saying she's so drunk, I got to carry her. But when I was carrying her, that meant her her cast was her foot was like right here. 
so your eye would go right to it. So they had to figure out a way to divert. So that's why it's shadowed and the coat is so big and crazy. Uh. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> okay. Oh, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> you want to dance? I don't think so. Ah, oh, Doug. <laughs> Douglas, you silly thing. Please don't think. <laughs> That's what I like about the way I feel. I feel like even if I tried to think, I couldn't. And I think too much, and I think so long. And it's so tiring. We spent like a full episode, DB, talking about like how it looked like in that scene you were carrying a gorilla like on your back. Yes. And she's in this giant mink coat and now it all makes sense. So you guys were like sense. hiding the fact that she was like in a fucking cast yeah. or boot or whatever. Yeah. Movie magic right there. This folks. also shatters my theory that she was so drunk she stole someone else's coat at the bar. But this... <laughs> This is a great uh, update. Could be too. I, mean, I like that too. We can yeah. add that in. I think that's good. Yeah, that could be that could be canon now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's funny. I feel like the cutting edge. We we're just talking about you and Moira Kelly. Like I feel like it feels very familiar and new at the same time. Like it's one of these movies that's like very much classic underdog sports movie, but then at the same time, it has like all the tropes of a great romantic comedy. And I think really the reason why it feels so you know fresh is because of the chemistry between you and Moira. So I was just wondering, can you tell us a little bit about that working relationship? Like your on-screen chemistry is so magnetic. It's the backbone of the film. Like when did you guys first meet? What were your rehearsals like? Were you friendly off-screen? Did you know each other before making the movie? We uh, we met at the screen test. Like uh, like I said, it was one of those lucky times where I was hired. Yeah. And then they had three women as candidates for the uh, the part. And it was Moira and Gabrielle Anwar, who's a very good actress. And then one other woman whose name I don't want to say because I thought she was the only one that I would have objected to. Mm-hmm. Just because I thought, like, Moira find a way to be charmingly, it's hard to say it anyway, charmingly bitchy. Yeah. And, yep. and Gabrielle Perfect Anwar, way to put it. <laughs> and this other woman just had the bitchy part. Mm-hmm. And I thought, mm. you know, and but I mean, I got to say the whole thing, Moira and I, the chemistry is undeniable and all that. And we worked very hard to create that. And, and some of it was natural. But the whole thing starts with Tony Gilroy, who this is his first script. And uh, he's a fascinating guy. I did not realize it was his first one. That's wild. Yeah. This is the first thing he, he wrote? Had, first thing that he ever had made. Yeah. So he had spent the previous four or five years uh, as William Goldman's apprentice. And he didn't have to do that. Like he could have sold scripts sooner. He could have, but he was working at the knee of like maybe the greatest screenwriter of, you know, since World War II. Oh my God. Yeah. Butch Cassidy, Princess Bride. So this script is, uh, there's not very much ad libbing in this script. This script is all Tony Gilroy. And uh, uh, the only thing I think that I added to it was they said, what's, what, what is the, where are you the most sore um, in, uh, in, in your training? And I said, it's my hips. So the scene when I stand up at the dinner table with the ice bags, yeah, that yes. was my contribution because that was, it's not your knees, <laughs> it's your hips. It's just, because once you bang your hip, it probably needs like two weeks to heal, but yeah. you're going to bang it again in three days. So it's never heals and it's just Oof. sore all the time. Yeah. I mean, I think we all, having watched this film, and I'm not just saying this, we watched it at least 10 to 12 times throughout the process of recording the podcast. And every time we watch it, the script is just... It has no excess. It really is a very tight 
Uh, everything that is said adds something. The stakes are always very clear. The dynamic between these two characters always feels believable. So it's a, it's a rock solid script. There's one thing that I did read um, that I'm just kind of curious about. I'd, I'd only read this in one place. So Sharon Cars, who was the double figure skater for Kate, and uh, I think Yahoo News had mentioned that she has the original script. It was actually written to be rated R, but they edited it to be PG. And that was a genius maneuver on their part. Is there any truth to there was an earlier iteration of this script that was either more R-rated or a different tone than what it became? Well, I don't know about the rating thing because you, you can't really – I don't think she got that right because you can't really tell what a movie's going to be rated until you submit it to the MPAA. So, mm. I mean, there are guidelines. You know, if you have – I think actually at one point the guideline was if you have one F-bomb where it's like uh, I want to F you R – but if you have two, but you need two f bombs of f you. So that was one <laughs> line that would turn you from a PG thirteen to an R. But I don't know if it's still the same standard. But but anyway, so it's but it's a moving target. I will say there was one storyline that was cut that I think was very smart, which was my coach played by the great Roy Detrice, um, uh He comes out as gay, and wow. it's it comes out of left field, and it came out of left field for the audience. And then, you know, he and I have a bit of a rift because, you know, he's been we've been roommates. He's we've been uh, you know, it's like been in the locker room together. He's been massaging me and I feel a little betrayed. Yeah. This is Anton, right? Yeah. 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 The great Roy Detrice. And, and it, it, we made it we made it a very believable and good arc. But it was it was extraneous. You know, in other words, the story was about me and Moira and Moira and her dad and me and my, co you know, just it was another level that it didn't need. So they cut that out. And I thought that was a good cut because it was distracting. You know, it made the it made the movie too heavy. It took it away from me and Moira, I thought. So and Roy was such a good actor that the scenes were really compelling. Um, but I thought that was a good cut. So maybe that's what she's alluding to that. I could see that at that time. It seems like that may have pushed it in, in a direction that was probably not as common in a 90s film. Um but yeah, I mean, I, that that's fascinating. That answers exactly. Oh boy, this is. Yeah. I just gotta say something about the rating. I never heard that, and but it makes sense because until The Hangover, no comedy rated R had ever been a hit. It just didn't mm. really happen. So, or maybe that's a misstatement, but I know that's the highest-grossing R-rated comedy of all time. I yeah. think that it was seen as a liability if you had an R rating on a comedy. You wanted an R rating on a slasher movie, but you didn't want it on a comedy. Um, to, but I didn't fully answer your question about the, the chemistry piece. And so, like I mentioned, we, we trained together. We got there early on. And so uh, um, MGM had rented this rink out for us. And, you know, I understood my character. So I was jabbing at Moira. She was jabbing at me. Was friendly in rehearsal. And so they had these rules. The rink was called Sky Rink. It was on, like, 48th Street and 9th Avenue in Manhattan on the 8th floor, which is so weird. And so we take the elevator up. And... Um, they had a, and it's a regular functioning hockey rink where sometimes they have figure skating, sometimes they have hockey. And there's a real culture thing that Tony Gilroy tapped into so great, which is these rinks are occupied by two different societies at different times that resent each other. And the hockey players <laughs> resent the figure skaters because as they practice their jumps, they take divots out of the ice. And the Samboni doesn't completely repair those divots. And when the puck hits those divots, it jumps. So they have a legitimate beef. And... <laughs> The figure skaters don't like the hockey players because they spit <laughs> on class or on the boards or whatever. So it's a real culture problem. And wow. they, it's like never the twain shall meet. So anyway, so at Skyrink, they we were we were training in our figure skates initially, and figure skates are really hard on your feet, and those toe picks suck. 
So I was very competent <laughs> as a as a skater. So I started wearing my hockey skates to the, uh, or at least one day I tried to wear my hockey skates during our figure skating training. And, and Moira said, you can't wear those. And there was a sign that said no hockey skates on the ice during figure skating time and vice versa, which is sort of an absurd sign. But there was a sign that said that. And Moira pointed at the sign and she said, you have to follow the rules. And I said, those are not the rules for us, honey. Those are the rules for the public. We are a private MGM ice. We make our own rules. And it made her so mad that I did it every day. So that was like, <laughs> that was like right out of the script, yeah. you know, the whole thing with the button. And, you know, so, but that was like a gift from God that they had that sign. And I got to do that to Moira. And Moira found her ways to do that to me. Yeah. And we actually also would compete to see who would get there earlier. And I had such an advantage because she was taking the Long Island Railroad. I was coming 15 blocks from my apartment, but I had to carry the hockey bag. She just had her skates, which she left at the rink. So, it, you know, but I would say I got her more often than not only because of Long Island Railroad. Amazing. Yeah. Again, just like the movie itself with the with the montage where you're racing each other to the rink and then she like opens the, the door to see you and she's all like uh, annoyed. It's, it's fascinating it's to hear that like the dynamic between the two of you was really beginning off camera. That's a scene that could have been in the cutting edge, like her telling you to take your skates off. And Yeah. And, and, and you know, the thing is that we had three months of like, it wasn't really rehearsals. We never, re I don't think we ever read the script together until we got there. I don't think, I don't even know if we ever read it there once we got to Toronto, but we, that kind of rehearsal is just unheard of these days. I just did a movie with uh, Francis Ford Coppola called Megalopolis. And we had a week of rehearsal. And that was the first time in 20 years that I've had rehearsal on a movie. So it's it's really a shame that it's gone away. Uh, and I hope some filmmakers will bring it back because it you, you never know what you're going to find. And three months was just a gift. That's incredible. I know Sidney Lumet always talked about the necessity to rehearse two weeks, just understand your lines, own it. And I, I feel it in this film. Like I really just, everything feels so lived in uh, as you watch it. So that makes a lot of sense. Wait, out of curiosity, DB, when did that go away? Like the, the idea that like you would stop, like that there wouldn't be a rehearsal budgeted into the, the production. I think agents did it and, and the greed of stars because right. basically what happens is whatever price uh, is agreed upon for the star of the movie or the top two or three stars of the movie, they usually break it down into 10 payments or eight payments or however long the movie is. And that becomes your weekly. So if somebody's getting a million dollars to make a movie and it's a 10 week movie, right. it's a thousand a week. So then if the producer said, we need you for a week of rehearsal, they'd say, okay, well, we need another hundred thousand, right. which is crazy, you know, because, you know, if you're doing a Broadway play, you, you get paid 400 bucks a week during rehearsal and then three weeks of rehearsal goes by, then they're selling tickets and now you're making 4,000 a week or it's just logical. And so I, I really blame the agents for that one, that they, discourage their clients from giving free weeks but it's not a free week it's like it's a week to work on your craft and to make the movie better but so i you know yeah it's, no it's so like you're it's very clear that you guys had time together off camera you said you spent three months like ice skating together it's like well yeah that reads on that reads on screen like you you guys you have this sort of magnetic energy between each other and it's a shame that more films and TV shows don't have the opportunity to have the actors. There isn't more time to do that uh, off screen. And questions within the film. I'd like to start asking you things that we loved within the scenes that, you know, I've obviously you've talked about this film a lot in your career. We try to highlight things that may not have been seen by others. 
Uh, yeah, forgive were, us if these questions get a little trivial. Uh, yeah. I love it. You, you said you, you, you had listened to the podcast, uh, so, so you know what you're getting yourself into yeah. here. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, and I have to say, I, I have approached every job in my career. I don't always have the time I had on the cutting edge, but I put a lot of care into what I do. And, and so it's very gratifying that at least there's three people in the world that have noticed <laughs> stuff that went into it. It's awesome. Oh, yes. And uh, one we of my favorite moments yeah. early in the film is when Anton comes to the construction site to basically let you know that he's interested in uh, potentially offering a new career path for you. And when we first find you on the construction site, obviously Doug does not necessarily want to be a construction worker. He doesn't want to be working at Dorsey's penalty box. But the way in which we find you is you are hanging upside down on a beam of wood with both legs and hands and you're hammering wildly into the plank. Bigger than I think. What? I say you are much bigger than I think. I'm spending much time watching video of you, Mr. Douglas Dorsey. You are very exciting skin. I just want to know everything about filming this scene, whose idea it was for Doug to be high like hanging upside down. Uh just tell me anything you remember about shooting this. Yeah, I mean I was that was a fun day. I mean there was I mean Paul Glazer and I sometimes we hit heads a little bit because you know, he, he's an actor, and I think part of him was sort of like he wished he was playing the part, which I can understand, you know, but now he was in the director role. And so sometimes I would have ideas and, and it would be different than the act, the idea he would have had as an actor. And so there's, there's a difference between what you do as a director and an actor, clearly. And he did a great job. But on this particular day, I had worked in construction. I was very competent at, um, you know, I could do all that stuff, you know, fairly easily operate tools, all this I wasn't like a high end guy, but when I was one of the many jobs I had was, you know, like framing and, and you know, doing all kinds of building loft beds, not like finished carpentry or anything, but I, I could handle a hammer. And I just thought I, I, I thought it would be the funniest thing would be that not only does he suck at it, but he's like <laughs> making it harder. He's like, his, approach is wrong, his technique is wrong. And it's there's no way that he's going to have a successful outcome, but he's also not going to listen to anybody. Yeah, that, reads. that really reads. It reads. <laughs> it reads. We loved it. I was like, Doug is in for a real problematic career in construction. If this is, he does like no ladder. I don't need what a ladder. What a I'm, choice. Like, a bra- choice. bravo, sir. Bravo. Yeah. Like, yeah. that is an, an incredible reading of the character and just like so, so choice, so perfect. So to, to see if we can get one level more trivial, I don't know if you'll recall this or have anything to, to offer. So if not, like, no worries, we can skip it. But there's one scene. Uh, it's the scene where you're you're walking in on, on Moira to give her a gift, on, on Kate to give her a gift, um, I guess just before Christmas. Uh, and you're wearing a a red shirt. It's like a red. It's a bright red long sleeve shirt with the letters W I L G. You know what is W I L G? We were trying to figure this out. Uh, we have a couple of theories, but if you have any recollection of like where that shirt came from, what those initials stand for, please share. You know what? I, I don't remember. I know there was a story and. I don't remember, but I would. I, if you guys have a good yeah, we, theory, we have a couple of theories. It Let was us... a radio station, <laughs> but I'm not sure. Like a radio station in Minnesota. That oh, that makes sense. That, that actually be. does make a lot of sense. But I don't know. Okay, but we we have a theory, so we have you here. We have to we have to pitch it to you, Ben. <laughs> what what is according to your research? What do you feel? W I L G. So there, there's a, a company called the Workers Injury Law and Advocacy Group, W I L G, and we had we had this kind of 
yeah, kind of, kind of a, a. We were like, what is, what is this? Uh, you know, is this like a like a workers' rights group? Is it some sort of like a, a labor organization? Um, and you know, there are there are obvious lot, obviously lot, uh, many like sort of class themes in the in the film. Um, you know, Doug's sort of introduction to this this world, this this like you know sort of social you know stratosphere that he's not accustomed to. Uh, and so, you know, we have a few theories about uh, whether Doug is, you know, a, 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 a comrade of the of the of the working <laughs> man. He's fighting for the working man. Is, for the working is, man. is, he, is, he, is he really, or is he a class traitor? Once he's, you know, <laughs> sipping champagne and eating caviar at a uh, at a steakhouse, which we may get to in a second. Um, but so. Yeah, we, we did a little bit more research about this group. It turns out they actually um, do some some work around uh, like whether CTE is a commensable workers' compensation claim. Uh, so we thought maybe there were parallels there with your hockey injury, and I don't know. But yeah. you know, that's so did, we that's can theory. leave that open to interpretation. Back in the nineties, was that is that group has been around? I yes. guess so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. they yes. seem to be still still I'm, active. I'm telling everybody that's what it was from now on. Yeah, Perfect. there you go. Perfect. That's amazing. Doug, that's huge we're happy you're it. fighting for the working man. <laughs> that's huge for us, DB. Thank that's you. so good. Yeah. Uh, one other quick question I have is I'm very curious. You might not know it because obviously Tony Gilroy wrote the script. This film features a lot of real locations. Uh, my understanding is that Mayhorn is not a real town in Minnesota. Do you remember why there was a need uh, to have Mayhorn be this fictitious town that Doug is from? Or is that just uh, a fun little trivia within? You know what? I, I, names is weird. You know, I, I directed a movie that I wrote called Two Tickets to Paradise. And you, you have to submit your script through uh, this clearance company. And they have all these weird rules that are supposed to protect you from being sued by somebody... Or, or, or some municipality or something. So I'm guessing that that was just like a, 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 like a, a benign name that would not get you sued. I, I can only imagine, unless that Tony had something in mind, but I think that because Doug is kind of a hero and he's not a negative character, they probably could have said Duluth or whatever they wanted, but I don't know. That's a t- the Duluth The Duluth machine doesn't ring as much as the Mayhorn machine. No, yeah, that's true. Definitely. <laughs> Got to go with the alliterative town. I think so, yeah, yeah. Speaking uh, speaking of this of this fake town, we 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 are all big fans here of the penalty box, uh, and we were wondering if you uh, had any insight into the cast of characters that that populates uh, that wonderful establishment. <laughs> do you do you recall at all if those were just like locals? Were they actually hired as extras? I mean, obviously they were. You know, I assume hired and paid as extras, but like, were they were they cast? Were they just like? people hanging out like in, in the town? Yeah, well, we shot that in Toronto. That was on the outskirts of Toronto. Um, so the entire movie was shot in Toronto, except uh, two scenes. There were two reshot scenes, um, which I thought, again, was brilliant. Robert Court and Tony Gilroy, they came up with, like, for example, uh, uh, it, it used to, the original ending was she kind of says yes before we do our final skating program. And so we reshot it so that it's, I've just proposed to her and thrown my heart at her and we're going to skate. And then we just don't know what her answer is. And, and so that was a really good change until Definitely. kind of the end. She says, I love you. And we're like, we're, and then it's like, of course they win the gold medal, but more importantly, they win each other. But the other scene that was really smart was um, she comes down the stairs in this French chalet and the, like the, the butler is putting the bags ready and it's sort of like to turn up the pressure on Doug, like that this bus is leaving. Like, mm-hmm. you know, this this job is over. This relationship is over. And that was a brilliant. And she was very nice. 
but it was very much sort of like shake mm. hands, partner, and uh, a heartbreaking scene. Uh, great scene, and and yeah. but without that scene, the end of the movie sort of had this thing of like, well, wait, what's at stake? I mean, if he doesn't, he's gonna see her at the airport. He's gonna see her in the U.S. He's gonna, you know, like the yeah. but that scene kind of was really smart writing where it was like turn up, ratchet up the gas so that he's got to say something before they skate because he may never see her again, which is great Hollywood uh, construction. I just keep thinking this, this thing with us, it's going to go away. I keep thinking if I can just keep moving and, and, and checking, I'll get clear. But do you understand what I'm telling you? I don't want to fight anymore. No, I mean, yeah, I, I don't want to fight anymore. We have to skate. This won't wait. Kate, maybe I wasn't ready. Maybe... Maybe you didn't give me much of a chance. Maybe, I don't know. I, I just, I just... Mosley, Dorsey, one minute. Kate, somewhere in the middle of all this, I fell in love with you. You may take the I'm saying I love you. I'm saying it out loud. We equally love the choice where when Doug and Kate actually run... The program at nationals, they only get in on a technicality. And I think like that is such a great choice from Mm. the stakes of the film, because obviously Doug's character is trying to rewrite the rules for what is possible in figure skating. And the fact that they don't technically win nationals, because I feel like if they did well at nationals, it kind of ruins the end because, you know, they're going to win. It's like they're unstoppable. And the fact that, uh, you know, these characters proceed to do this wild routine at the end even knowing that the Nationals didn't actually go their way trying something new is just great. It's more of a comment than a question. Just want to say, we love it on here. At Twitch <laughs> yeah, I thought it was great that that was one of those things where Tony Gilroy was, you know, he was skating a fine line with really ridiculing, like the ludicrousness of figure skating with the judges and the costumes and having fun with it. And the idea they get DQ'd because she gets caught in his lederhosen. And have, <laughs> I mean, that's just, that's great writing. Yes, the lederhosen incident is a, a, a great moment. I mean, we would, we would have been lost without Tony. Just terrible. She stepped into the spin, then I'm not sure, but it looked like she got caught in his lederhosen. You know what this means. We are in we're going to France! Parlez-vous Olympics? Another character within this world that I think is an imposing figure is Rick Tuttle, which is, uh, you know, Rick is this uh, figure who obviously was coach for Kate and uh, didn't lead them to glory and ends up uh, kind of leading Brian and Lori's team in the Olympics, as we come to learn. But when Rick comes back to uh, the in the middle of the film. He comes back out of the blue to kind of meet with Kate. You know what I think is the saddest thing about sports? People who stay too long at the party. What are you doing here, Rick? I'm saying I'd like to see you go out a champion. That's my plan. If you wanted to skate so badly, why didn't you come to me? I know we've made some mistakes. Mistakes? Spent the last 10 years tying me into knots. We were kind of like, is this Rick's kind of plan to throw Kate off by showing up out of the blue? Because he doesn't say, like, I want you back. He's just there to kind of, like, throw her and and Doug. Do you think, like, Rick Tuttle is knowingly doing this, hoping that it helps Brian and Lori? That's kind of what we were thinking. I 100% agree with you. I think it's gamesmanship. And I think that, uh, and it's, again, it's just Tony Gilroy at his best. 
and it, it creates an opening for, for, you know, I think when Doug says, you know, take off the rock, it's cutting the heck out of my hand. That's not really what he's saying. He's saying, can we, you know, can we get back to neutral here and maybe, uh, you know, uh, explore the other side? You know, I think whether it's that overt in his mind, you know, I don't, I think, I mean, I skated with uh, a couple of skaters that had wedding rings on. It's not that big a deal. <laughs> it didn't cut your hand and throw you off. Uh, but no, no, it's sort of like it was a very, it's just good writing. Yeah. Well, we were happy that she took the ring off and got rid of Hale. That, uh, oh, Hale. <laughs> that Bostonian. Great, great actor. Dwyer did a great job. Good he guy. is incredible. He's like one of our unsung heroes of the film. The, the way the way that he just very politely excuses himself when he realizes like, oh, yeah, like I, I don't have a place here we anymore. Realize, like he is legit one of the heroes of the film. Like you and Kate can't get together unless Hale is like, you don't Out love of the picture. Me. This hasn't got anything to do with skating, does it? What does that mean? You're falling for him. What? Doug. Yes. You are. You're falling for him. Oh, that's crazy. You think so? You're nuts. Am I? Well, you see how we act together. Yes, I do. You never get along. I mean, we're always fighting. Foreplay. Like, when he just, yeah. like, pulls the ripcord and he's like, I'm out of here. Like, you don't love me. You're clearly in love with this guy. It sort of allows the whole movie to, like, just go for it, which is awesome. Yeah. Humphrey Bogart at the airport. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, and he, bigger he's than, the bigger than yeah, him. exactly. And the fact that he saw it before Kate or maybe even Doug, you know, like he was like the one like clear eyed, like, you know, intelligent person. He's a terrific actor. Like you think about what he accomplished in Field of Dreams with one scene. You catch a good game. Thank you. It's so beautiful here. For me... Well, for me, it's like a dream come true. Can I ask you something? Is is this heaven? It's Iowa. Iowa? Dreams. I mean, he, he just right, twice. Just, Want to yeah. play a catch? Want to play a catch? Yeah. It's it's a uh, you know. I think another character that we really need to talk about, very important in this film, is Roy Detrice's Anton Pamchenko. This figure is an imposing coach, and I'm curious, like from a just pure, like obviously you and Moira had your own chemistry, kind of created your own dynamic. Did Roy kind of become a coach off screen and on because he really is this like figure? who helps mold his two skaters to become something. And Roy strikes me as uh, an acting figure who might bring that energy to just you as actors. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about working with Roy and Anton Pinchenko? Well, I think, uh, you know, once the filming started, uh, you know, Moira, actresses, unfortunately, it takes longer in hair and makeup. They got to get there a little earlier. It's just the nature of the beast. So I could have, I would have dinner with Roy and his beautiful wife like three times a week 
And Roy's story was just, I idolized Roy. And I wasn't just like, like, you know, again, like the method acting thing of like trying to get a relationship with my coach. Um, Roy was, uh, he was in the RAF in World War II and he was shot down, prisoner of war. Um, Whoa. And, and he met his wife. He was like, he lied to get in. So he was like 17. And he met his wife uh, after he was, uh, after she was injured and she was a nurse. So when he was repatriated to England, she nursed him for two months in the hospital. And so they had this 50 year love story um, that, you know, I'd go have dinner with them. And, and it was just, I just loved it. And he would tell me stories about, you know, uh, you know, touring in the provinces of England and playing every Shakespearean role and never braggy, always to tell the great story. And, you know, he was at the RSC. I mean, he, he achieved at the highest level of the English theatrical tradition. You promise knighthood to our forward son. Unsheathe your sword and dub him presently. Edward, kneel down. Edward, arise a knight and learn this lesson. Draw thy sword in right. My gracious father, by your kingly leave, I'll draw it as apparent to the crown. And in that quarrel, use it to the death. Why, that is spoken like a two-old prince. And so to have him in the movie was, I was like, this is great. This is like having John Gilgood here. So I tried to get as much of him as I could. And we, we stayed very close friends until he passed away. Wow, that yeah. is incredible. I had no idea his whole backstory. He won a Tony or he was nominated for a Tony. And the Tony Award for Best Featured Actor in a Play goes to Roy Dotree. This is Mr. Dotrice's first Tony Award. <laughs> well, I want to thank my beloved wife, Kay, who for the last 53 years has been constantly at my side pulling me up by the bootstraps whenever I suffered rejection. And just four years before I met Kay, I was in a German prisoner of war camp. And there for the first time I came in contact with Americans. I found them to have a unique ability. The ability not to envy, but to applaud other people's success. And it was then that I fell in love with Americans and America. And that love affair has gone on through the years and I would like to think is epitomized by this gift from you tonight, which I would like to think of as a token of our mutual affection. I hope you will allow me to share whatever talent I have with you in the years to come in this country, in this, in this wonderful country. God bless America. Yeah, he did. Uh, he had a great burst of... Uh... Um, after the cutting edge where it kind of it brought him to attention of American audiences, I think. And yeah, he did either win or get nominated for one late in his career. Yeah. A Tony and a drama desk. Yeah. Wow. Awesome. And, he's, and his character is the uh, innovator who comes up with the Pamchenko. Of a, course. A move that his lives namesake. within the, gr the gray area of legal moves in, in <laughs> Olympic figure skating and Pamchenko, he brings out these like ancient scrolls where he's, drafted all these like notes over 20 years. I mean, what was your honest reaction um, when you read about the Pamchenko and what it was and possibly even seeing the doubles film some of this in real time? Like just what was your reaction to Pamchenko 
in theory and in execution. Is it possible? <laughs> it's not possible. Okay. <laughs> That's what we thought. Yeah, I mean, you can't throw something away from yourself and then stay still and have it come back to you unless you're Australian. <laughs> no, so, uh, you know, but it does. I thought it was a wonderful movie magic idea that we have to bring out the death-defying secret weapon that nobody's ever tried and, you know, the quad jump or whatever. I thought yeah. that was great and it was... You know, the idea that it had this lingo built into it. And, but if you think too hard about it, it's kind of silly. Oh, but of it's course. delightful. And and obviously, at some point, two figure skaters did, at the very least, pull the maneuver where they are spinning with a person on ice. Did you get to witness any of this being filmed? I hate to break your heart, but a lot of that spinning is me and a mannequin. Oh, this wow. is great news. This is wonderful this to hear. This was it's a, way yeah. too dangerous. Like when you're spinning somebody like that, yep. and some of it was my double and uh, with the mannequin. But again, like he didn't really look as much like me, so we would switch in and out. And uh, you know that was hard for me to do. That that spinning is a hard thing to do if you're yeah. new, new to figure skating. But we, you know, with trick photography and everything like that. But the hardest part of that sequence was. The, the, the wig kept flying off the mannequin. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, my fiance and I rewatched this movie last night and we both like just paused it during the Pemchenko twist. And we're like, literally, the woman's head is like a centimeter off the ice. Yeah. Like, she, yes. like she, she is about to be like gravely hurt. Are they going to get it? Eventually. Before they kill each other? did it for a little bit but i just remember the part with the with the mannequin uh just because it was too unsafe yeah, yeah. quite frankly i'm grateful yeah. that this was a mannequin because yeah. i was like that lady's head is like mere centimeters <laughs> from the ice this is wonderful news and i'm glad to verify that it what was a relief. yeah what, although yeah, it is a real move like, uh, the first half of it at least is is a real move oh, that is oh, performed you know by, by pro skaters which is yeah. still mind-blowing to me it's just a throw if you throw her you got yeah the throwing is not gonna, gonna land like yeah. you can't and, stay there and you know wait for her to come down. Then you actually will be scraping her up with a putty knife, yeah. as uh, as Doug might say. And another line within the film that we have to address before kind of discussing the aftermath of the release is Topic. I mean, Topic was was that a line when you read the script mm. that you knew that was going to be the line that became uh, kind of entrenched in every uh, person's mind with this film as Topic. Oh, oh shit. Did that strike you as going to be a horrible line? I remember thinking it was funny. I didn't know it was going to become so iconic. The, the greatest memory I have of reading the script was I read it in one sitting, and it made me it made me cry. Like when I, at the end of the movie, I was like, oh, "This is a beautiful movie," and I closed it. And I was like, "I'm doing this movie," and you know, so it was just a great, great piece of writing from beginning to end. And I mean, Tony adapted it a little bit as we as we went, but not very much. It was pretty much. It arrived as a as a beautiful little uh, story. Yeah, we've we've uh, the episode isn't out yet, but we've actually recorded through the end of the movie, and and we all are unanimous in our uh, feelings that the the that final you know I love you speech by Doug is just like one of the greatest in movie history. It's just like oh, it's so, so it's like it's truly 
uh, yeah, the way it, it cuts unfurls. through the corniness, and you're like, this is. Just, it just feels like so. Like you're. It just locks you in the moment, and it's yeah, it's breathtaking. And Very good for my money. Also, the fact that it really. I think like another screenwriter probably would have kept telling the story whether they win gold or not. And ultimately the fact that it ends on, I love you. And just this moment between these two characters is like such a lovely, I just can't imagine anymore. Like I just am so happy that we leave these two characters actually admitting they love one another. And that is the end of the film. It's just a great moment. You didn't have to. Yes, I did. Why? Because I love you. Just remember who said it first. And you know, we didn't mention Terry O'Quinn, but as as Kate's oh, dad, I mean, thank you for bringing him up. And just just like there's one little cutaway during that skating sequence where we're where we're clearly blowing the doors off the building and we're gonna win, and he's just so happy and satisfied, and he does it with no lines, and you know, there's just there's a lot of really great acting in this movie. He has a lot of oh. great acting that's done without words. Like yeah, there's, his there's, face. There's another moment when you guys are in Albertville. Where the big Moira fight is apologizing yeah. to everyone. She's saying like, I'm so sorry. Like I've wasted your time. And the camera's like tight on Terry O'Quinn. And you could just see him like realizing I've totally failed my child. Like my child is apologizing to me and she has nothing to apologize for. And it's just, these guys both have kids. It's like, yeah, it's, your heart sinks. Like when you see that moment. Yeah. I've come, I've, I have to, I, my son is 21 and my daughter's 19 and, and I, I wasn't even married or, or single when I made the movie. Um, but I recently watched the movie with somebody who had seen it. And it was funny how I had Terry O'Quinn was the character that I related to the most, wow. which was, you know, as a dad, like, you know, what he was going through. And, you know, so I just really I, I don't know. I have a lot of admiration for him and Roy. Uh, the two of them brought so much and Dwyer. They brought so much gravity to very limited screen time. And it was like the ultimate, you know, like in a, uh, you know, like in a Preston Sturgis movie, people come in and they don't have a lot to do, but they're so good that it makes the main characters better. And it's also a film that I feel is in some respects, it's very, it's a very small group of actors. Like despite this being a, you know, a 90 somewhat minute movie, we're ultimately hanging out with five characters and how they play off of one another is really, it's almost like a stage play of sorts. Like it's, it's despite being figure skating, we obviously spend a lot of time with them just in the rinker. And I just find it such a wonderful ensemble cast that play off of one another and, by the end, I want to just like know all these people and and feel. I think that's why this film resonates so much years later. Is that I just like every time I watch it, I'm like, I believe everyone here, and everyone's intentions yeah. are earnest, and they're just trying their best, and no one's malicious. And I just think uh, the way you all played it was wonderful. Oh, thank you. I mean, I feel the same way. I mean, I, I've been in I, you know, every day you start a movie, you know, you hope for the best, and you know, three or four days in, you realize, okay, this is not going to be you know a perfect movie. And you go into a little bit more of a survival mode, which is <laughs> as the director is screwing this up and editing, how can I put enough things in here so the editor can talk the director out of making the wrong choice? You know, you start thinking like that. And uh, yeah. so this was not the case on this one. I felt like if this doesn't work, it's on me. That must be an intense feeling, like to be that uh, worried that it's all on your shoulders. Is that Was that daunting in 1992 for you? Yeah, I mean, I thought it was because, uh, I mean, I honestly, you know, I... 
I thought Moira, I thought the entire country was going to fall in love with Moira. I thought she was. A I mean, they did. <laughs> yeah. And, and she was so good in her part because she's not like she's not a bitchy person at all. She's like she's like the fun girl. And so for her to create that character and make that believable and I'm and I'm going in these scenes and I'm thinking, all right, I got to I got to hold up my end. And so, yeah, it definitely was pressure to, to excel. You know, like I knew I wasn't going to suck, but it was like I want to make I want to be at her level. Right, right. You knew that, like, yeah. If if you are on your A game, this is something that could this this could be like a title winning team, basically. Like, right. Yeah. You know, as we sort of wind down here, Ben Christian, if you have any last questions, I was I was wondering, DB, like, you know, when you when you when Paul Michael Glazer calls, you know, that's a wrap on set. Like, what's running through your head? Like, wh- when you think about your final day filming uh, on the set of The Cutting Edge, like, w- what runs through your head? What memories do you have? Well, I became very good friends with uh, our camera operator, uh, John Kassar, who became the, the showrunner on 24. He's, a, he's now a brilliant, you know, producing director on a lot of great TV shows. Um, and he, he's an awesome guy. He was from Toronto. And, like, it was a big break for him. And I remember, you know, I always feel like I want to be – I want to be a member of the crew who has dialogue. I don't want to be like the, the actor out in his dressing room, like that guy. So I just felt like, you know, we had all worked really hard, like filming on ice. Um, you know, all the equipment, everything's got to be moved around the ice all the time. People are falling down. I mean, not many because they're Canadians, but but still there's it's like filming on boats. It's really arduous and technically hard. And And when we finished, I just really, you know, I think all of us really felt like satisfied like we just we built a good building you know like and who knows how it's going to turn out but it's not going to suck and and i think it might be really good and and that's it that's just a really great hard-earned feeling that you know i've had you know, like i mentioned lonesome dove and memphis bell there's a couple of times when wow you sort of know this could be really special and it's been a long time for me but the movie i just finished megalopolis i think has a chance to be that too with adam driver and aubrey plaza and natalie emmanuel the cast we have and John Voight and, and, and it's Francis Ford Coppola again. So, and the script is great. So it's very rare, but you know, I hope, I hope Megalopolis works out the way the cutting edge did. Yeah. Can you tell us anything about that movie? Like, or just, you know, Coppola is like a personal hero for me. Like, can, can you share quickly anything about that experience? So it's like the second time yeah. that you've worked with him, what's he like, any sort of, and anything you can share about the experience? Well, it's, it's already one of the most amazing stories in the history of Hollywood because he put up $120 million of his own money to finance this movie. So Whoa. nobody's ever made a bet like that in Hollywood on themselves. And he's 82 years old and he's sort of like, I've wanted to make this movie for 35 years. I don't want anybody telling me how to make it. And he has this incredible vision. Like he, like a very whole, I'm a little more pessimistic about society. You know, I feel like <laughs> it'll be a miracle if we get through the next 10 years without nuclear war, <laughs> you know, which I hope I'm wrong about, but Clearly, sorry to put it be a downer, but anyway, <laughs> but Francis has this view of like, we're, people are basically good and kind, and that if if society gives them the tools to be creative, and to be supported, and to be nurtured, that great things can happen. So that's kind of the point of view of Adam Driver's character in this movie. And then Giancarlo Esposito is the mayor of New York City. It's not really New York City; it's New Rome. It's kind of like Gotham City combination of like ancient Rome and modern New York in a fascinating way. And so, so I'm the police commissioner of New York. So I'm like the right hand man to Giancarlo and we're the forces of the old guard, which is like, just keep things the way they are. And Adam Driver's attitude is, you know, there's greater possibility for humans. We can do better. And I I don't know. I think people might really respond to 
that kind of a message. You know, let's go out and see something hopeful and beautiful. And, and the movie is incredible to look at what I've seen so far. So uh, who knows? Hopefully it'll uh, it'll capture everybody's imagination. All right, DB, we've taken up way too much of your time. You're on social media, Twitter, Instagram, at Real DB Sweeney. Before you go, quickly tell our audience anything you're up to now, what you're working on these days. I know you were filming a, like a couple episodes of a TV show, Call Me Cat, right? Yeah, unfortunately it got movie? canceled. That was, that was fun. But oh, no, it got canceled? Movies, yeah, and it's, but I got a couple more uh, uh, projects. Like, I just can't okay. jinx them yet, but I've... I've actually done a lot of writing over the last few years. Um, my film, Two Tickets to Paradise, if anybody hasn't seen that, I'd love them to check that out. It's on uh, uh, Amazon.com, or you can watch it for free on Tubi or some other places if you want to watch commercials. Uh, mm-hmm. and, I, and I wrote that script. I'm very proud of it. The guy I wrote it with, Brian Curry, the next script he wrote is Green Book, which won all the Oscars and everything. Wow. So yeah. it's not, there's some similarities, like road trip movie, Norther is going south and making trouble. But otherwise, it's they're very different. And uh I have a short that I recently did with Sean Austin called Two Dumb Mix. And there's no B in the dumb, but I love Sean and it's a slapstick comedy. It's five minutes long. You just go to two dumb mix.com. Um, and so I'm just, you know, I'm just so feel so blessed that I've had this 35 year career and uh, just trying to, you know, live up to it, you know, and, and just try to do the best I can every day on the set and hopefully run into another script like the cutting edge at some point. Well, thank you well, so much yeah. for taking the time, man. We really appreciate it. And yeah, uh, we feel blessed to, to that, that you, you know, graced us here. Uh, and, and just can't believe that you agreed to participate and couldn't thank you enough. Cause this was so fun. Well, thank you guys. And, uh, it's very, it's very flattering. Like I said, to have people, you know, watch the movie over and over again and analyze it and treat it like it's something as worthy like you guys did. And so I'm, I'm grateful to you guys. I, I really appreciate it. It's true. We watched it as kids and we're watching it as adults and it's as like awesome, you know, that's 30, great. 30 years later, you know, yeah. so it's, it's great. Congrats. Thank you again for joining us. And, thank thank uh, you guys. We really, yeah. really enjoyed talking to you. All right. Take care. Thanks, TV. You can listen to Switch. 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 Switch